Welcome to the Dyad Presents, a video game music podcast. I'm the Dyad, and this is the Virtual Boy. First, let me say this right at the top of the show. Thanks to Utopia Nemo for the inspiration of the theme this week. He rightfully encouraged me to play some more Virtual Boy tracks in the show, and I figured, why not just play a whole bunch at once and catch up? The Virtual Boy is a bizarre standout in video game history. The console was merely a blip on the radar, yet it's been dissected and analyzed to no end probably in no small part because it has the dubious honor of being the biggest black mark of all time against Nintendo's otherwise pretty sterling reputation. So today I'm serving up another kind of history lesson. This episode will probably run a lot like the TG16 special from a few weeks ago. I hope to pepper in some history between the tracks I play. There's a lot to say about the system, and I'm definitely not going to cover it all, but I'm going to try and include like an overview and talk about some of the things that I found most interesting. Also, the lion's share of the information on the show today came from an incredibly in-depth article written by Benj Edwards. I'll link to it on the blog post for the show. 
Also, the great website planetvb.com was the source for most of the sound files. One of the many downsides of playing music from an oddball system is actually finding the tracks to play. But I did my best to scrape some good stuff together, and I think there are some real winners on the show today. As for the music bringing us in this week, it's from the game Galactic Pinball. Composed by Kenji Yamamoto and Masaru Tajima, the track is called Moonman Fandango. And I'm really not going to be talking too much about the games this week, and I'm going to be focusing more on the system itself. That being said, shockingly, this is a pinball game. The main difference is that it uses a puck rather than a ball, and it doesn't show the frames of the pinball cabinet. That's the way the um, space concept comes into play. The 3D effects are actually used sparingly, or at least gingerly, and the game itself received mixed reviews, but the sound is well regarded. So let's get into the meat. The history of the Virtual Boy starts not in Japan, but in Massachusetts. An engineer named Alan Becker was struck with inspiration while crammed on an uncomfortable airline seat. If only there were a portable computer and high-resolution display you could use on flights, something that wouldn't take too many batteries. Whoa, hold on there, idea man. You're never going to get a job at Sega with thoughts like that. And I think it's important to put a timestamp on this. This whole process started in the mid-1980s. So keep in mind that at the time, laptops were only capable of displaying bland monochrome graphics. On top of that, the screens were small and they didn't function well in low light, and they tended to blur when they were displaying motion. Technological restrictions eliminated both CRT and LCD as possibilities for the screen. Either the cost to implement or the power required didn't align with Becker's vision. Instead, he chose to explore LED displays, and here's where it gets crunchy for a little bit. Essentially, the Virtual Boy is an old-timey illusionist busker pedaling on a street corner at the World's Fair. And what I mean by that strained metaphor is that the Virtual Boy uses almost literal smoke and mirrors to achieve its visual effects. The console uses a pair of single-line linear array LEDs at 1x224, one for each eye. This is rather than using a full 384 by 224 that the screen resolution would require. Again, the cost of a full array would be prohibitive. The LEDs basically optically print an image by changing the pattern of lights while sweeping over the eye. Instead of moving the LEDs themselves though, Becker used curved mirrors. The mirrors move back and forth at 50 times per second, and Becker dubbed the process Scanned Linear Array, or SLA. Again, due to the technological restrictions of the time, and again, we're talking about the mid-80s, only red LEDs were compatible with the cost requirements. And jumping ahead a bit, even by the time the technology came to Nintendo, a full-color Virtual Boy was impossible to release in 1995. High-efficiency blue and green LEDs only became available in 1996. Up to that point, blue LEDs were extremely inefficient, resulting in super low brightness. Because of the oscillating mirror setup, high-performance LEDs were required. In order to function properly, each pixel is only in use for a tiny fraction of a second. High-peak brightness was needed to make the visual display bright and be comfortable for the user to view. Without the technology of high-efficiency blue and green LEDs, the Virtual Boy was limited to the red-only display. 
And this seems like a good point to get back into some of the music. Moving on to the game Golf, composed by Ken Kojima, this is the menu music. Japan as T&E Virtual Golf. This was the token golf game for the system. The Virtual Boy apparently preferred names that leave little to the imagination as this game was developed by T&E Soft. It has mixed reviews, although it trends positive. The game saw critical praise for its controls and the game physics, and it's considered the third best game on the system. It now seems like a good time to point out that there were only ever 22 games released for the Virtual Boy. And furthermore, only 14 of those made it to North America. There were three North America exclusives, so even Japan had a pretty small library to choose from. Because of the system's incredibly short life cycle, there were more unreleased games in various states of completion. But I've stuck to release games for this episode. There's also not a thriving exactly, but at least an active homebrew community. Sticking with the numbers, Nintendo sold a paltry 770,000 units before discontinuing the Virtual Boy a little more than a year after its launch. The performance fell woefully short of projected sales of 3 million consoles and 14 million games. Even the tempered expectations of Nintendo of America projected hardware sales of 1.5 million units and software sales numbering 2.5 million by the end of the launch year. I was actually surprised it sold so many. When you're flirting with a million units, it doesn't seem to be the disaster it's been painted out to be, but I guess when you're Nintendo, and at that time the company was basically synonymous with video games, you expected bigger and better things. Especially if you fell short of one-third of your projection. Despite lacking comparable internal power, Virtual Boy was priced much closer to standard consoles of the time. Contrast that with a bundled Game Boy and Tetris combo packaged for $60, 
the Virtual Boy sold for 180 US dollars. Nintendo struggled to find the Virtual Boy's proper place. It was a far cry from being portable, requiring a kickstand and a controller to use, but it was designed to be a close neighbor, if not a true portable device. One review even compared it as the successor to the 3D Viewmaster toy. It seemed like customers just didn't have room for the strange hybrid contraption. But the Virtual Boy didn't start out as a Frankenstein's monster of a console. In fact, it had a pretty clear and specific vision, at least when it started. Circumstances kind of snowballed on them and they had to change directions, but more on that later. The next track that I'm going to play is from the game Jack Brothers, or Jack Bros. Composed by Hiroyuki Yanada, this is the incongruously titled Temple of Nightmare. Japan as Jack Brothers no Meiro de Heiho, the game is a spin-off from Atlas's video game series Megami Tensei, and this was the first entry to be released outside of Japan. Using gauntlet-style action gameplay, Jack Bros features the eponymous Jack Frost, Jack Lantern, 
and Jack Skelton. Incidentally, Jack Frost is the mascot of the game publisher Atlas. The brothers have visited the human world for Halloween, and they need to return to the fairy world before the portal connecting the two closes. Brett Elston, the host of the excellent VGM podcast VG Empire, called the game remarkably competent and fun. When I think of the Shin Megami Tensei series, I think of it mostly as RPG-centric, so this seems to be a bit of a standout. But I guess what better system to pursue strange projects than the Virtual Boy? Returning to the history lesson, Becker formed Reflection Technology Inc. in 1986. It took about six months to develop a prototype, and the company dubbed it The Private Eye. Becker and company focused on potential medical, military, industrial, and entertainment applications, and they shopped around their new gadget, hoping to land a lease from a company in one of the fields. Reflection technology had little success, though. In fact, it wasn't until the virtual reality craze of the early 90s that Private Eye got a bit of a makeover. Using two units and a movement tracker attached to a welding mask, the company created a simple tank game that was viewed from the first-person perspective. The game is probably the first instance of a VR video game, and more importantly, it was likely the first inexpensive virtual reality headset. This led to a major shift in focus for the company, and they doubled their efforts to sell the toy and game companies. In the early 90s, Reflection Technology Inc. was actually able to get their tech in front of Nintendo's Gunpei Yokoi. The head of Nintendo's prestigious R&D One division, Yokoi was responsible for numerous hit products, most notably the Game & Watch series of handheld games and the granddaddy of portables, the Game Boy. I actually originally planned to go in much greater detail about Yokoi himself because I think he's a super interesting guy. Um, I think he also had tremendous influence on the Virtual Boy as well as just the handheld market in general. But I'd rather save it and do a... Maybe in like a Game Boy focus or something, I'll just spend more time getting into his own individual history. In any event, the private eye technology fell right into Yokoi's wheelhouse. He prided himself on finding novel uses for inexpensive technology. The Game & Watch series started as, I think, a digital watch. The possible apocryphal story says that Yokoi was on the subway watching a businessman playing with his digital watch out of boredom, and he was struck with inspiration. Whether true or not, it gives you an idea of the kind of guy Yokoi was and what he took inspiration from. The Game Boy in particular was incredibly successful despite technology inferior to the competitors that sprang up around it. And Yokoi was in love with the prototype and immediately saw the potential. Nintendo chairman Hiroshi Yamauchi gave the green light to pursue the project and Nintendo purchased a worldwide exclusive license to the private eye display technology for use in video games. This included a $10 million advance in royalties, along with purchasing a minority stake in reflection technology. Initially conceived as a pair of goggles, development on the project, codenamed VR32, began under Yokoi's direction. The dev team was concerned about users' proximity to EMF radiation, as the effects still hadn't been studied, so they covered the internal CPU with a metal plate. This in turn made it too heavy to wear, and the wearable goggles idea was called off. Several other designs were shot down by Nintendo's legal team. 
Because the unit covered the face and eyes and put the player in relative darkness, Nintendo's legal team conjured up horror stories of children tripping and falling downstairs. Or worse yet, the image of a kid in the backseat of a car when an accident happens, shards of glass shredding his face. The recommendations of the legal team hamstrung the system's potential as a portable device. Instead, for fear of those accidents, Nintendo decided to anchor the project to tabletops. In fact, that's ultimately what the engineers were forced into. A bulky tabletop headset. Players had to hunch over to see the screen and to use the controller. The trade-off, of course, was the ability to play games in 3D. For my next track, from the game Panic Bomber, composed by Shinichi Sakamoto and Jun Chikuma, this is Desert of Desolation, the World 3 theme. Bomber is a falling block puzzle game painted over with Bomberman sprites. Originally debuting on the PC Engine CD in 1994, it appeared on a number of systems, including of course, the Virtual Boy. It wasn't a good fit for the VB as it didn't use its 3D capabilities and the red and black color scheme was much less alluring than the rainbow available on all the other systems. That being said, it supposedly has very addictive gameplay, which is important in a puzzle game. Going back to the console history, Nintendo had found itself stuck. Now that they had committed to a tabletop unit, they could use a more powerful chipset to make use of polygonal 3D, like the Nintendo 64. But they'd already invested significantly in the manufacture and design of the quasi-portable idea. The VR32 just didn't have the guts to handle proper 3D. Around this time, creeping unease began to seep into the development team at Nintendo. Takefumi Makino, the co-author of Gunpei Yokoi's biography, had this to say. Even Mr. Yokoi admitted that he himself felt uneasy during development. He described it as a kind of hiri-hiri feeling. This is an onomatopoeia that only exists in Japanese, but think about it as sort of a feeling you would get when being cooked slowly over a frying pan. Even the name itself speaks to the expectations for the console. Virtual Boy is a combination of virtual reality and the inimitable Game Boy itself. As Benj Edwards put it, 
there would be no second chances and no potential of boutique status for Nintendo's quote-unquote fourth product. And since we're talking about gloom and doom, why don't we move on to our next track? And what do I mean by that? Why is it connected? Well, this game has the dubious honor of being the worst game to come out for the Virtual Boy. From the game Waterworld, composed by Jonathan Dunn, this is the in-game BGM. While there isn't a true opposite to the word superlative, Waterworld earns a series of hyperbolic expressions of derision. A licensed game about a bad movie on a console considered by many to be one of the worst of all time. On top of that, the game is widely regarded as the worst to appear in the Virtual Boy, scorning lowest amongst users on Planet Virtual Boy. In fact, Stephen L. Kent, author of The Ultimate History of Video Games and the making of Doom 3, said that this was his choice for the worst video game of all time. The angry video game nerd called it an over-budget, over-hyped movie on a gimmicky, overpriced, um, let's just say he said, console. And despite all that, a loose cart still fetches $90 on eBay. A complete copy? $250. This isn't the time for me to get on my soapbox about video game collecting, but just know that I'm gnashing my teeth. That being said, there's definitely nothing wrong with the Jonathan Dunn soundtrack. I was originally familiar with the SNES version of the game, 
uh, and more on that in another episode actually. But the Virtual Boy version is also pretty cool. I think Jonathan Dunn is a little overlooked as a VGM composer. He has some nice pieces out there. I will say that my personal preference is maybe more for soundtracks that quote-unquote sound a bit more video gamey or are composed for a game, but obviously Dunn has some great songs that I can appreciate. In 1994, the console market was home to fierce competition. The Sega Saturn and the Sony PlayStation were set to release, and Nintendo's own Ultra 64 wasn't scheduled until the oh-so-distant future of 1996. With all the stumbling blocks and setbacks littering the trail behind them, the development team may have done well to simply shelf the Virtual Boy. Instead, Yamauchi pressured the R&D1 team to complete the system to buy time for the N64. No longer the innovative triumph Yokoi had envisioned, Nintendo now sought to use the console as merely a stopgap. Further sandbagging the Virtual Boy was an explicit directive from Nintendo executives to de-emphasize Mario on the system. Mario, the single most iconic figure in video games, was blacklisted. The reasoning was to preserve his 3D debut for the Nintendo 64, but the two consoles really couldn't be further apart. And with the aforementioned squeezing of the release timeline, R&D1 didn't have the ability to develop its own software, at least not to the degree of quality it needed. They had to resort to shoehorning 2D gameplay into a 3D gimmick. Jumping back to music briefly, the next track is a short one. It's only about 30 seconds long, but I think it's pretty catchy. It comes from the game Virtual League Baseball, and it's composed by Mari Komatsu. This song is the menu theme. Virtual Pro Yaku 95 was developed and published by Chemco in 1995. A sequel, Virtual League Baseball 2, was planned but cancelled due to the shuttering of Virtual Boy. And that may be for the best because the game was also pretty poorly received. At first, the VR32 was causing nothing but excitement in the gaming press. It even seemed to spur the industry forward with Atari and Sega both announcing plans to develop VR tech. But as more and more of the shortcomings were leaked, the interest began to wane. And to make matters worse, Nintendo caught heat from the Japanese press. I skipped over talking about some of the feared health issues associated with the system, but it was a significant concern in both countries. From Ben Jedward's article again, in the months leading up to the Virtual Boy's launch in Japan, the Japanese press seized onto Nintendo's health and eyesight warnings and sensationalized them, implying that the Virtual Boy was definitively bad for players' eyes. Even if a child wanted a Virtual Boy, his or her dad was more likely to buy a PlayStation for Christmas. 
On the other side of the world, though, the Virtual Boy actually outsold the Sega Saturn during the launch window. This was apparently not good enough for Nintendo, though, because they lowered the system's price by $20 to $159.95 on October 18th. By December in Japan, the Virtual Boy had sold only 140,000 units. An embarrassing failure for Nintendo. At least, by Nintendo's standards. On December 22nd, 1995, Nintendo shut down the Virtual Boy in Japan, only six months after its release. The system was officially labeled a flop. Things slowed down in America also, and Nintendo dropped the price down to $99 in May of 1996. In August, it officially pulled the plug once and for all. By late 1996, you could find a Virtual Boy in clearance aisles for $30 or less. Man, I wish I had done that. My aunt was actually a nanny for the only kid I knew who had a Virtual Boy. He was a few years older than I was, but every once in a while, my brothers and me would go visit during summer vacation. I remember he let me beat Secret of Mana with him playing as a second player, and I also remember playing Mario Tennis for the Virtual Boy. I couldn't really tell you anything about the game, I don't remember the experience, barely at all really. I think I just wanted to go back and play more Secret of Mana. But in honor of him, my next track is going to come from Mario's Tennis. Composed by Hitoshi Fukushima and Morihito Iwamoto, this track is Singles 1.
Mario's Tennis, and that's with an apostrophe S, was a launch title for the Virtual Boy, and even came as a pack-in game in North America. And as with most of the Virtual Boy library, the game received mixed reviews from critics. People generally felt the game offered a pretty good version of tennis, but thought it was hampered by the Virtual Boy hardware and the lack of content. The game ditches power-ups and other video game trappings in favor of the fundamentals of the actual sport. The stereoscopic 3D attempted a better depiction of depth on the court and thus allowed the player to better perceive the action. Gunpei Yokoi's post-Virtual Boy history is a tragic one, but I'd like to save it for an episode focusing more on him. He's a prolific figure in video game history, and like I said before, I think I want to devote an entire episode to him. I would be remiss if I didn't discuss the actual sound chip hardware since I'm doing this episode. The Virtual Boy's sound unit has five wave channels and a noise channel. The system has two built-in stereo speakers, a volume wheel, and a headphone jack. Channels 1 through 4 are standard wave channels. Channel 5 contains all the functionality of the standard wave channels, as well as support for frequency sweep and modulation, and the sixth channel is a noise generator. And finally, whatever happened to reflection technology? Well, Nintendo was big enough to weather the storm, but the failure of the Virtual Boy was financially devastating for Becker's company. Sometime in 1997, the company announced it was working on a full-color version of the Private Eye, it was called the P7, but it ran out of money before completing the project. Founder Al Becker soon moved on to another venture involved with uh, water purification technology for developing nations. But on October 14, 2001, he died unexpectedly in his home from a ruptured artery. He was only 53. For those of you still out there listening, thanks for sticking with me on this episode. And for those of you who enjoy this kind of format, I'm happy to oblige. And for those of you who prefer something different, tune in next week. And hey, there are only so many consoles out there, so I can't do too many more of these. My last track on the show comes from quite possibly the best game soundtrack on the system. And actually, I think I saved the best for last. I really love this song. It's also the track recommendation from Utopia Nemo that kickstarted the whole episode. So, thanks again to him, or I guess if you didn't like it, go chase after him with your pitchforks. Before I go, as always, special thanks to Alan Euler, aka Periodical, for mixing and editing the show. You can follow the show at thedietpresents.blogspot.com, and you can subscribe via your favorite podcatcher. Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes, and you can follow me on Twitter at thediad. You can email me at thedietpresents at gmail.com, and there are uh, both Facebook page and group. You can find it by searching for the show or at the dyad. Until next time, from the game Teleroboxer, composed by Katsuya Yamano, from the Virtual Boy, this is the staff role.